Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another incredible guest. We have with us Tom, who is the founder and CEO of Dr. Doctor, which you may have seen in the news recently after an incredible fundraise. They're a patient engagement platform helping to increase the capacity in the NHS, um, have supported millions of patients across the country. So it's a massive pleasure having you on the show, Tom. How are you? Hi guys, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, so before we go into your journey, I had a little flick through your LinkedIn and, and something caught my eye and I want to start with that. And it's on the opposite end of the spectrum, what on earth is a yacht navigator? Like, what is that? How does someone that does that end up working and building a health tech company? It's a bit different, isn't it? So I am, um, yeah, my journey into health was, was unusual, it's fair to say. <laughs> I am, um, when I, when I um, was growing up, I got really into sailing and I um, I wanted to, I wanted to design boats for a living. That's what I wanted to do. Oh, I wow. wanted to be um, a guy that designed racing sailboats. And um, when I went to uni in Southampton, I went there because it's got a great naval architecture degree and I did lots and lots of sailing. And I was lucky enough to travel around the world with some race boat teams. And I got into the navigation role and the navigation role is basically you stand at the back with all the data on the computer and, and the maps and the charts um, and work out which way you're going to go around this racetrack. So which way around the island am I going to go? What's the wind going to do next? And you try and feed all that information into the team who are, who are driving the boat. Um, and it's a pretty cool job, actually, if you want to then go on and become a CEO, because You've got to take all the inputs you've got to try and yeah. synthesize them and then you've got to give them back to the team to go and like mm -hmm. you know actually do the hard work which is making the boat very fast um i loved it i was and i you know i spent i still do it occasionally but i spent 10 years like kind of semi-pro racing around the world doing that it was good oh, fun. Wow. so it seems that you discovered your passion quite early on in your career how on earth do you kind of leave the waters get back onto the shore to kind of build this this incredible company tell us a bit more about what you did after that and how you know the origin of dr doctor yeah so um so it's three of us that started the business and we met myself um Rinesh and perrin still all work in the company still very motivated by it um and we we met consulting so after after uni i I went and worked, I did a couple of different jobs. And I ended up working for a management consultancy firm called Newton. And Rinesh and I met literally in an onion peeling factory mm. in Bedfordshire. And we were, <laughs> we went into this project and it was, it's the largest vegetable peeling factory in the country. So if you've had a Domino's pizza, you'll have had yeah. some onions that Rinesh and I were involved in peeling. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it was a really it was a really cool project you know we we helped that business save a lot of money um it went from not being very profitable to, to being quite profitable and um sort of were quite involved in the turnaround and him and i ended up both going and working in the health care part of newton and i actually didn't want to work in health really i was a engineer i loved peeling onions um yeah. and health kind of felt a bit messy and I don't know, it didn't really appeal to me, but I, I got sent to do a project in Wolverhampton and um, I just loved it. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I just loved how health, you have got the process side, you've got the people side. It's like, it's so unique from that point of view mm-hmm. um, and ended up specializing in health as did Renee. It's where I met my, my other founder, Perrin, who's more on the IT side. And we, um, yeah, we ended up spending like a number of years working in hospitals up and down the country, doing outpatient work and theatres work. And Perrin won an HSJ award for the work he did in Northwest London, where he wrote the mm. theatre shopping system. And having done that for a few years, it was like 2012. And, you know, everybody had suddenly got iPhones. It become a, like a, you know, it's amazing how quickly it happened. You know, we all went from having yeah. Nokia to having or Blackberries. <laughs> Nokia's to Blackberries to iPhones in the course of, you know, not very long at all. And I remember I got my first iPhone and I was like, this is awesome. So we thought, let's take everything we've learned about hospitals and let's build an app to allow people to mm-hmm. schedule their outpatient appointments because mobile phones have changed everything else. Like they're going to change healthcare, surely. Um, and here we are 10 years later, kind of still trying to solve that problem. Tom, can we dive in just for a moment into sort of the consultancy work that you did, you've you done, right? A lot of our listeners will be thinking, what does a management consultant do in healthcare? Because as a clinician, right, we don't see them. We don't see them like F1s and F2s. We don't see them on the wards. We're, but we hear they're all in the hospital. They're all working somewhere. What? How is what? What's the task like and where are you guys? What are you guys doing? Suddenly rock up wearing suits and then everyone's starting to do hand wash all of a sudden for the first time that whole morning after seeing like 20 patients. <laughs> That's basically it, isn't it? Um, great question. It is a great question. I wonder myself. I mean, I think management consultancy gets a bit of a bad rep in a lot of places because there's a lot of come in, write a report. That report basically says what everybody's already, already known. The report gets left in someone's drawer and nothing ever happens, right? Like that is sadly mm. how it used to be. We were quite lucky at that um like we used to do we used to do two things. We used to do pieces of work where we like guaranteed the fee that we charged against actually like making some change happen. Mm. Which was quite cool. So we'd say, you know, work at your outpatient department and we think we can help save ten million pounds, say, and we'll only charge a percentage of that. So that was quite cool. But we also focus not on the strategy, but on the, how do you actually make things better? So an example of something I would have done is, um, I did a lot of this. I'd go and sit in, um, in outpatients or, or, or come into theater. So I would scrub in, um, mm. and, uh, and sit there all day, um, and just sort of like watch what was happening and like, look for the problems. So like, you know, did we not have the right tools or. You know, um, were we missing a key member of staff or, you know, what else caused delays in theatres and then put that data together and then work with the consultant and say, cool, like, it looks like we sort of, you were waiting for stuff here. That must have been frustrating. And then work out what was the downstream reason for that. So, you know, had we not procured enough of a certain tool or, you know, was the, was the rotor wrong or whatever it was. Mm. And then like, keep asking why and keep going up the train chain mm. until we got the root cause and then solve that root cause try and make things run more efficiently mm. um and that was really rewarding you'd you weren't just pointing out the problems you were actually helping solve those issues and i'm sure you found right like when you're working it's in an organization like a hospital you can point out a problem but it never gets fixed 
Yeah. No. Right. Why hospitals are full of, uh, you know, stuff to hold together with gaffer tape and, um, you know, fixes that people have done themselves. And to be able to go and like, keep asking why and keep going up the chain until yeah. we'd found the root cause and then solve it was really rewarding because actually like this, the, the, the clinical teams are really pleased because we'd solve issues for them. We knew we were improving patients' lives. Um, it was good. Um, it's still hard, right? Like getting change to happen in hospitals is, I think, one of the hardest jobs going. Yeah. Um, anyone, like anyone who do a, cl a clinical change project knows how hard it is. Um, interestingly, that's like, that bled into the DNA of Dr. Doctor. Mm. And so much of what makes our business what it is today is mm. we're not hard we're not afraid to take on hard problems mm. um, and we're not afraid to actually go and do the change piece and i think that's something which lots of tech businesses get wrong is they think you know what as long as i've got the best technology i'm sure people are just going to use this right mm. and it doesn't work like that amazing you've got to bring the organization on a journey yeah exactly um so tom if you could, if you can dive into the early moments of Dr. Doctor, the zero to one phase, the, the, when you were mapping out the problems, the issues, when you were going up that Y chain, um, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Yeah, so we, um, as I said, we thought we were going to build an app for patients to book appointments. And actually, I'm really glad that two things happened. First one was we applied to an accelerator called Bethnal Green Ventures. And Bethany Green Ventures, they still exist today. Anybody who's thinking about starting a business in health, I recommend you look at them because they're, they're a social impact accelerator. So they take for-profit businesses with purpose and they help accelerate them. And BGV helped us sort of interrogate the question we were trying to answer. Um, mm. And so instead of just writing an app, which we could have just gone and done, we, we actually spent three months in, in clinic with patients in what was Heather and Wexham, which is now part of Frimley, um, just asking them like what their pain points were mm. and loads and loads and loads of the feedback we got from people was, I don't really know why I'm here. Um, and it's really hard to change this appointment. So mm. we, we shifted our focus from booking new appointments to, um, to sending reminder messages, which explained the context and then making it easy to change appointments people already had. Um, mm. and that turned out to be a much more constrained and solvable problem. And we actually ended up writing the first version of our software purely using text messages. It just, it just sent text messages that explained the context and people could reply to them. And it had like a little conversational engine in the background that, mm. you know, if you reply change, it would give you some new options or you could text cancel or you could text help. Um, and we still send, we send 11 million text messages a month now. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. So we still send a lot of text messages. Um, but we didn't end up building what we thought we were going to build at the start. Um, no. so that was one, I would say the other big thing is like, like when you're at that early stage of growth, um, so much of it is about like being able to iterate quickly on, on mm. an experiment because the hypotheses that you go in with are often wrong, to be honest. Um, and it's, and it's when you start talking to users, whether they're clinical users or patient users, um, that you realize actually you need to build something slightly different. And so we were quite good at, um, building up the lightest touch version of stuff. And we actually did things like we, um, Steve, who was one of our first employees who still works for us as a developer, he actually like, we were like, actually, should we write the code for this or should we just do it manually? And he just sat there 
and waited to see if anyone texted back and we just like replied manually to start with <laughs> just to see if patients like would use it. and it turned out that they really did and we got lots of messages that were like cool all right let's write some code to automate this quick um <laughs> but that's the stuff i really recommend you know mm. i don't know if you've heard the story of um the airbnb founders who yeah. like when they first started they they weren't getting much traction on the platform so they said we'll go and take the photographs the accommodation for you so mm -hmm. so like brian chensky went and took photos this accommodation and that's how they like got over that initial activation energy mm -hmm. um and so i'm a massive fan of to your question like doing stuff that doesn't scale that well at the start in order that you prove out like your your ideas um before you invest a lot of time and effort into writing expensive apps and websites no definitely and i'm a big fan of that approach as well one of the questions I had, and I've seen a, a lot more on LinkedIn recently, was this, I don't know if it's frustration, but there seems to be a lot of dismay at clinicians feeling that non-clinical individuals are coming and founding these companies um, that have no clinical background whatsoever. I want to know if you kind of faced that resistance when you did it kind of 10 years ago, and do you think maybe the beauty of the success of Dr. Doctor was the fact that you were someone with a non-clinical background that could come in and straight away see kind of some of the stark problems that exist that maybe as clinicians we don't see because we're in it on a day-to-day -day basis. I think being non-clinical was an advantage for us at the beginning because of exactly what you said. Um, I think it helps that like I'm in it, we're all really engineers and um, engineers and clinicians are really similar, although people don't normally say it, you know, yeah. it's about, you know, like solving problems in a logical way. It's about, you know, having good recall. It's about being able to solve the people stuff as well. Mm. Um, and as an engineer, I could come in and I could talk to clinicians in a way which that like we spoke the same language, like use evidence, um, you know, like prove your hypotheses, like all the stuff, <laughs> you know, right? Um, but it allowed me to have a different enough view on the problem that I could sort of come in tangentially. Um, interestingly, we're now looking to recruit lots of clinical people into our business. So if there's anyone listening, you know, oh, reach out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what we do is we are um, increasingly solving like properly clinical challenges on our platform. And mm. now I'm like, cool, this is outside of my wheelhouse. I need, I need people that have, that, you know, that have been on the front line working as a clinician to come in and, and solve that for us. But, but in those early days, viewing it as a process engineer, I think was a benefit. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that seems to be the general consensus. One of the follow-up questions, and I know we have a lot of health tech founders and builders who listen to this, is you've kind of identified a problem, you've kind of patched together some sort of solution that seems to be working. How mm. do you then go about in getting or commercializing the, the platform or the product? How do you get it into trust and NHS? I know you work with a lot of them now, but who was the first you know, trust or hospital you worked with? Mm. So we work with, we work with 50, more than 50 trusts now, mm -hmm. um, which is a decent chunk of the market. Our first three customers were, were Heather and Wexham, which is now Frimley. Okay. Um, and we got Heather and Wexham through a joint applying for some, for some funding. It was at the time it was called the ITK fund, which is the interoperability toolkit. And we got 60 grand from NHS Digital to basically like integrate our platform with IPM, which was their EHR. Um, so that got us off the ground. So I would say to people, for your first site, find an engaged customer, 
go and find a, a problem that they, that they have and then see if you can find some third party funding. You know, so we we knew um, Heather Allen and Nigel Ubin, who are the IT department, because we'd work with them at Newton. Um, they had a specific problem around DNA rates, and we mm. went and talked that for them. Um, and we got some external funding, and it was really successful. So, you know, find someone who's engaged, make sure the problem you're solving is specific, and then then look for third party money because there's lots of it around. We then signed. Um, we did lots of smaller bits of work, and then the 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 next couple of like really big contracts we signed were Nottingham University Hospitals, who um, are still a customer of ours today. And they um, there was a combination of like forward thinking IT department, hmm. um, a brilliant um, leader there. So Andrew Fernie is a great IT leader and, and Lisa Lawrence, who's, who worked for us still in digital and Lisa just drove that project for us. And um, we focused on de on delivering a return on investment. So hmm. can we save the trust money through reduction in admin, reduction in DNA, um, and and better clinic um, fill rates? And we saved the trust a lot of cash, and so that became really successful. And then the third one was Guys and St Thomas. Yeah. Um, and what happened at Guys and St Thomas was that we um, we did a pilot in one department. Um, and again, it was looking at did not attend rates and, and in guys and St. Thomas, they, it was, it was women's services and they were, they were about three, um, started working about August, sorry. And they were behind their outpatient activity plan by a couple of hundred patients. Hmm. Um, and we put in place the product and we managed to increase the throughput in clinic by about 10% total. So it was seeing 10% more patients than they would have been otherwise seeing. Hmm. Um, we took them from a couple hundred patients behind that to to 600 patients ahead of plan and because oh, wow. they were yeah which is amazing right um because they were on a payment by results tariff they could claim the income for all those patients so we managed to claim 317 and i remember the numbers right because it was such an important piece of work for us 317,000 pounds of additional income claimed oh, wow. over six months um and off the back of that we could then go to the organization more broadly and say Look, we've saved three hundred seventeen thousand pounds of sorry, we've claimed three hundred seventeen thousand pounds of additional income here. If we scale up this up across the organisation, you're going to make a significant improvement in your financial position. And um, Ian Abs, who was the medical director at the time, he's now the chief exec of Guys and St Thomas. He saw that data that we'd built, um, and being a clinician, he looked at the evidence and he went, "Okay, this makes sense." <laughs> and we got the funding of the IT department. Guy called Gary McAllister, who's um, gone to do great things at New London, um, the finance department, the ops department, and they put together a business case to, mm. to buy the product and roll it out across the across Guys and St Thomas. And we rolled it out across Guys and St Thomas in about eight months, which was a really quick rollout. Um, and we went on to save Guys and St Thomas four million pounds a year. Oh, wow. um, and and GSTT really were big teaching trust in the country to put patient appointments online. It was really, really impressive. Um, you know, and from there, uh, yeah, we've never looked back, really. That's incredible. Shout out to GST mm -hmm. team. We, we, we trained there as well, uh, as okay. the medical stewards. One of the questions I had was, so I had a look on the website, Tom, on the doctor's website, and a number that striked me as obscene was kind of the amount of money spent on physical paper sending out to people i think the number was like 100 million like i, I still can't fathom that i don't know if it's true or not but like 
Tell me. Yeah. I mean, the NHS, if you think about it, for every appointment that happens in the NHS, we send an average of three letters, okay. right? So you've got like an appointment letter, a reminder letter, then a post-appointment letter. Um, and often there's many more as well. Um, and each one of those costs 50p if you're really, really cheap, up to like £1.80 mm. probably. Um, and then we have, I don't even know how many millions of appointments we have in the NHS, right? We oh, have like millions and millions and millions of them. And it's, it's a huge cost. And it's, it's also crazy because letters, not only are they really expensive, they're really slow. Yep. So mm. you try and get a patient in for a two week weight clinic, right? So, you know, suspected cancer. Target is you see them within two weeks of referral. You send a letter, the letter takes three days. You've already lost three days out of your mm. like two week pathway. Um, they often go to the wrong place, you know, the addresses are often wrong. And also the, the evidence shows that most people find hospital letters hard to understand. I don't know if you've, you know, recently seen one, but you know, the, the information hierarchy is often quite poor. The, the important bits are lost. Yeah. Quite scary. If English isn't your first language, they're often like written in a very complicated way. Um, that you know they don't work if you're transient there are lots of patients that like you know hep c patients classic example right like move around a lot like they're not going to mm. get the letter there's so many reasons they don't work for patients mm. um yet somehow we're still addicted to this like expensive slow yeah. hard to use way of communicating and um so much of what we do is about let's make it digital i, I talk about like three slices so i say mm -hmm. um channel shift patients away from the phone and away from post onto online. If you can do that, you can save millions and millions of pounds, like without even, you know, you make the service better and you save money. Like that is a total no brainer. We should be doing that everywhere. Mm. Once you've channel shifted patients, you can then do slightly more advanced functionality. So patient self-scheduling, um, like waitlist management, kind of patient initiated follow-up models, all that stuff. And then once you've done that, you can begin to do remote monitoring and using data to like change clinical practice. But it starts with channel shift and organizations that don't get the channel shift bit right, they struggle with the rest of it. Mm. And how have the elder, how, how have the more older population of patients uh, sort of been uh, receptive to your concept? Because they're the, the population that aren't so digitally savvy. Uh, well, we say they aren't. Mm -hmm. what's 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 your sort of verdict on that yeah. what's your data show uh -huh. that is a good question so um so first of all I, I think it's a um disservice to most people to old people to say that they don't use digital and um, particularly since covid you know the number of grandmas out there that learn to use facetime so they can talk to their grandchildren is pretty high um, <laughs> I know that's true. Yeah, exactly. I know she's it's a tablet now, but she's, right. she knows. She's like, she's a whiz at it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I actually met the other day a group of ladies that do, they've been doing like Skype coffee mornings. Um, and I said, is that since COVID? And they went, no, no, we did Skype coffee mornings before COVID. It's easier than like, you know, we're all trying to get out of our houses. Um, so I think it's like, you know, we don't give people enough credit for that. Um, However, there are groups of people that aren't digitally literate, you know, and there are groups of people who 
actually would be much more comfortable with a letter and being able to speak to someone on the phone. And one of the really cool things about the shift to digital is if you imagine you work in the booking centre in a big hospital, guys in St Thomas, right? Um, you get and you have something like 2 million outpatient appointments a year to book and there's probably, you know, 40 people that work in that booking centre. So each each day you're taking hundreds of phone calls. Mm. Now, when we shift patients to using online, what happens is the phone call volume drops because all of us lot start doing it on our phone. Yeah. We don't, we're not going to ring up, are we? So phone call volume drops and that means that like when somebody who does need to speak to them, either because they're elderly or because they have um, additional needs or um, or just because they're a bit nervous and they want reassurance, they can get through. They don't spend the phone waiting for 40 minutes. You know, they get straight through. Um, and then when they do get through, that person can spend longer with them. You know, they can spend longer mm-hmm. talking to them. They can help book transport. They can, you know, reassure them that it's all going to be okay. Do the human side of healthcare. Um, and so that's the real joy of, of like the channel shift, like by, by automating and making it online for sort of 80% of people, the 20% that still want to phone up, they can just have a much, much better experience. No, um, definitely. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think I'm the type of people, if I need to call and do something, I find it beyond frustrating. Yeah. And I like the, the whole kind of patient engagement, kind of the back and forth rescheduling things. It's, it's a lot easier. One of the questions I had and I've been thinking about was there's a lot of innovation happening in the space. Um, obviously, one of the problems in NHS is the fact that a lot of information is siloed. Do you think as companies grow and they get a bit, a bit more of the market share that it then becomes a bit more siloed, but except it's companies involved? So let's say you've got 50 trusts you're working with and a different company doing something similar to you, Dr. Doctor, has mm. another 50 trusts. How then do you kind of integrate you know, what kind of issues can arise from those situations? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, isn't it? So so we've been banging the drum for kind of data sharing and interoperability for a long time because I think it's better for patients, right? Mm. Um, so and we've, we've done a couple of things. So like our platform works best when it's integrated with the electronic health records. So the CERNA or the EPIC or the System C or the whatever. Um, and so, so, you know, we can get the data from those systems and bring it into ours. That's, that's got a lot better in the last few years. Hmm. But we've also um, tried to build partnerships with other companies. Okay. So we've got a really strong partnership with Patients Know Best. Mm-hmm. Um, and Patients Know Best are like the country's leading personal health record. Um, and, you know, some of our functionality overlaps and some stuff we do, which is different. And we decided that actually we should try and share data across those two. So we built a we built an integration between the two products, um, and you can sign on to one. You sign into Doctor Doctor, and you can view your PKB record, or you can sign into PKB, and you can do your Doctor Doctor transactions. Um, and that's now live in Northwest London. So if you're a patient in Northwest London, in Chelsea, Shortly Imperial, um, and the rest of that ICS, um, you'll be able to sign into one of our products and share data, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, we also signed some partnerships with some primary care. Um, companies. So we're about to do a piece of work in in Birmingham with one of the big primary care online consultation providers um, where we're thinking about, you know, we do the hospital side really well. They do the GP side really well. Mm. Maybe we should try and bring that together and 
as a patient who starts their journey GP land, they should be able to travel all the way through their referral, through their outpatient appointment and beyond, you know, and, and the data should be shared. So, so I think like, to answer your question, like as suppliers, we have a, we have a bit of a duty to make our products work together mm. uh, and, and improve the patient experience. The one really good thing is um, the NHS app. So the NHS app has, um, you know, everybody downloaded it to get their COVID pass, right? So it had this huge uptick in usage and lots of us in the background have integrated our product with the NHS app. So mm. you can now view your secondary care appointments in some of our sites through the NHS app directly. And mm. I think that's really cool because it acts as a, yeah, it acts as a jumping off point for lots of journeys. And it also um, kind of aggregates the data together for patients. And I think that's, that's a really amazing bit of work by NHS England, basically. No, and, mm. and I agree. And it's reassuring to hear that the openness to data sharing and interoperability as well. Mm. It's critical, right, to make this stuff work. Like no one's gonna, um, no one business is gonna solve this problem on their own. It needs mm. it needs a consortium of us all to work together and try really hard to do that. Amazing, T Tom. When it comes to forming these collaboration partnerships, you talked about um, conducting pilot studies, right? It requires that first initial step. A lot of people are going to be thinking they've got an idea, they want to get it in there, they want to test it. Practically speaking, have you got some tips to get your foot in the door to form that collaboration, talk to the, the change maker, the person who makes the decision? Um, you got any tips for us? Yeah, I do. So, so first of all, get out there and network. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, for a while that was hard because everybody was remote. Um, people are going back to networking now. And mm. at the beginning of our journey, I went to as many networking events as I could just to like meet people. And it's by doing that, that you meet people that have a problem that you can solve in mm. other innovations. So do that first of all. Um, links to that, I think is, as soon as you're given the opportunity, go and visit those people where they work. So I think innovators, sometimes aren't quick enough to try and get really close to the problem. So I would always get on the train and go and visit a hospital who had an interest in our products. And I would like go and get into a clinic, you know, and see what was really happening. Cause it's, it's there that you have the really great conversations and you can move stuff forward and you can build champions on that point about building champions. So to make things happen in a hospital, you need champions at lots of levels. So, mm. you know, the ideal pilot you've got a an engaged clinician who's got a problem that needs to be solved or an administrator or a manager um, who can like push it forward on, on a sort of practical basis. And then some air cover from somebody senior in the organization who can, who can sign off whatever needs to be signed off. And if you have just one either end, just the you know executive person or just the, um, just the champion, things tend to get stuck. If it's just an executive, you can get signed off for stuff, but nothing will happen on the ground. If it's just someone on the ground, you can make progress, but you're never going to get budgetary sign off. You're never going to get IG sign off. So I call it like the pincer movement. Make sure you've got a champion on the ground and a champion high up that can give you air cover. So that's really important. And then I think the last bit is be really specific about the problem you're solving and what the benefits are. So I think mm -hmm. what often people will see a problem 
they'll try and solve it, but they won't be totally clear on um, what's the return on investment here? What's the improvement in outcomes here? What's the change in patient experience here? And if you don't know what those things are, you can't measure whether or not the innovation has made an impact. Mm. If you can't measure whether or not the innovation has an impact, there's no point doing a pilot because what are you trying to prove? No, definitely. I think that was really good advice, actually, having the stakeholders at multiple levels. And I can see a lot of companies struggling as to why they can get something off the ground and, and the measuring of impact. I want to take a step back and talk about you as an individual, Tom. You've mm. been kind of running the company for about 10 years now. How have you evolved as an individual? And tell us a bit more about leadership, what it takes to lead a company like Dr. Duck with millions of users, you know, with millions of investor money in the bank. You know, you have a lot of pressure, I imagine, from, a, you know, various stakeholders yourself. Yeah, there certainly is. Um, the coolest thing about being a founder is you go on a personal journey like no other. Um, and I am a very different person to the person I was 10 years ago when we started this business. Very different. Um, you, you have to have tenacity. Um, you have to really believe in what you're doing. I, I, I don't recommend it as a career for people who, um, who aren't really passionate about the problem they're solving. It's just, you know, but if you are passionate about the problem you're solving, it is the best thing you can ever do with your life because it's so rewarding. You know, I am um, get on the train to come to the office and I, every single day I look forward to, and I feel, I feel very, very, you know, privileged to have that. Um, you have to do different things. So the person who is successful at getting that first pilot is a hustler. You've got to go and, you know, hunt down that problem and, you know, persuade people to take a risk on you and do stuff they wouldn't, you know, otherwise have done. And that is very different to the person who now, in my case, you know, we've got 150 staff, we'll be 200 people by the end of the year. Um, they need something else from me as a chief exec. You know, they need consistency and they need um, clarity and they need um, execution focus rather than innovation focus. And, and, and so kind of as you go through that journey as an entrepreneur, the most important skill is self-awareness and recognizing like what the organization needs from you as you go through those different parts of the journey. And, and that's something which uh, I've been really lucky that I've worked with a, with a coach now for four years and um, she's amazing. She, we meet every six weeks. She spends two hours with me and um, she holds me to account on like, have I worked on my own personal development? You know, and sometimes that's about developing my growing edges. And, you know, for me, you know, some of that was learning to be more directive when that was appropriate. Um, and as I said, moving from innovating to executing. Um, but also like, you know, forces me to be kind to myself when the journey's hard. Mm. And it's, you know, you can be your own worst critic. Um, we're all ambitious, right? Like we all have very high expectations of ourselves and we want to achieve great things. And sometimes when the journey hasn't been a straight line, it can be really hard. You know, like the lows of being an entrepreneur are very, very low. The highs are very high, but the lows are very low. And actually having someone who, you know, reminded me that we were doing a great job and, you know, to take the time out and to, to work on self-care, you know, and for me, that's making sure that I go outside, go for a run, walk the dog, um, has been an incredibly important part of building resilience. I think that was my, that's my second, like, 
big learning point is to to go on a journey like this resilience is absolutely key you have to be able to take the knocks and you have to like always find the optimism to look for the next kind of uplift in opportunity <laughs> um even when sometimes it can be really hard to find um and yeah like over the last 10 years like my sort of personal resilience i think has massively gone up and and you find yourself um like we're all it's interesting right like i think entrepreneurs tend to be quite spiky characters generally speaking like really good at some stuff and really bad at some other stuff yeah. um and and a lot of careers rub like the spikiness off people because they kind of they look to average out you know actually don't be we don't want you to be an amazing inspiring speaker just give a decent you know, but be better at this bit here that you're not too good at um but i think people should lean into their spikiness and people should lean into the stuff that they're really great at um and i've been very fortunate in the last few years that um i've been able to focus on the stuff i'm good at and hire some people who are great at the stuff i'm not great at mm. um, and that's that's much better than trying to be sort of average across the board at everything you know lean into the stuff that that you enjoy and you're good at and find others that can do the other bits definitely touching on that point give us an example of something you've recently leaned into that you discovered is your superpower your unfair advantage compared to other founders or chief execs hmm. <laughs> that's a really good question um so i am like the world's most irritating optimist <laughs> um in that i always think that i always think the best in people and i always think that there's like so much opportunity to be found everywhere um and my team i think probably find that annoying sometimes but it means that like you know we're always looking for the next opportunity um and links to that is um leaning into like as as the business gets bigger like leading the team but actually like not just managing the team like really leading the team Mm. Um, and I'm the thing I'm proudest of in Doctor Doctor is Christmas party this year, standing up in front of 150 people, half of whom were new because we've recruited so many people in the last 12 months, um, and feeling like they all believed in the mission. And I, and I think for me that's like the essence of being a good leader is everybody in your organisation know where you're going and why you're going there and really believe in that why. And I think I've lent hard into that. You know, I've always believed in my why. You know, why I want to be here. I want to make the NHS sustainable and I want to make it access available to everybody when they need it. And, and I've lent into communicating that to my team and making sure that they they want to be here as much as I want to be here. Um, and it means that they can then be great at their jobs. Um, and I'm really, really, really proud of all of them for that. And um, yeah, like I, I look forward to leaning into it even harder as we go from 150 to 300 to 1,000, you know? It sounds incredible. Um, and I think it's one of those things you do need to be successful. Um, but it may, you, you mentioned something, you kind of see the best in people. And there's a saying, not everything that shines is gold, right? Mm. How does that relay into kind of recruiting the right talent? If you're someone, you know, you're sitting behind the table and some of these, you know, they're, they're, they're charming, you know, they, they know all the right things to say and you believe in them. How do you kind of, you've, you know, you've, over a hundred people, how do you find the right talent and how do you keep them is another question. 
Yeah, I mean, recruiting is the most important skill. After after you've got product market fit, so mm. after you've solved your problem, the most important thing is recruiting great people. Um, and I wouldn't say we're perfect at it. <laughs> um, what what we do do well though is um, it's a combination of being really clear on like the the um, the type of person you want. Um, in terms of like attitude and skills and linking mm. that back all the way back to your company values and then building great process around it. And we're lucky that we've got a fantastic people team at Dr. Doctor. They're really motivated. Um, and so they run our recruitment processes really well. You know, like running a great process means you get great candidates. Um, you know, if you go on Glassdoor, you can see that our like our internal people reviews are all really high. Mm. Um, and it's we run, we try and run a really you know, combination of like a really clear data-driven recruitment process and try and do it effectively for candidates so that everyone gets a good experience. Um, we've done well, like hiring senior people is hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've done really well hiring senior people from that network we built. I talked earlier about solving problems, you know, when you're at the beginning of your journey networking, that mm. network has done pretty well over the years, you know, and lots of the best people we've hired have come from our health tech networks or our broader you know, network. I think that important um and then like also referrals like if you have good people getting them to like referring people that they know is a great way of hiring and mm. um, you spend a lot of money on recruiters easily in business and um I, I think time and effort spent building a really strong internal people function um and then lots of referrals from existing staff is, is the best way to build scalable teams um and then your point about retention so there's no point recruiting great people if they will leave um, and I think the number one thing there is culture, you know, building a great culture where, where fantastic A players can go and be A players. Mm. And that means building strong guidelines for people, but giving them autonomy within that, um, building really strong psychological safety, you know, space for people to fail, people to ask questions, people to get things wrong and feel like that they can do that. That's absolutely critical, and we work really hard at that, Doctor Doctor. We don't always get it perfect. I'm not going to claim that, but um, but we try ever so hard to create that for our members of staff. Um, flexibility around working. You know, we live in a post-COVID world now. Um, you know, it's really important. We've got a couple of developers who joined us when we were five people who are still with us, 150. Oh wow! And I believe that they're here because they believe in the mission, and um, but also. So the, the, the big things like they believe in the mission, but also we're flexible enough that they can pick their kids up from school. You know, yeah. people like adults and people treat you like well back in return. Um, I've always believed in that. So um, I think that as well, like we don't, you don't have to be in the office. You don't have to work certain hours. We trust people to, to work hard. And guess what? When you trust people, they give back. Um, so all of those things really help. And then I think, um, making sure you give people opportunities for promotion and self-development mm. within an organization is really important. Like making sure that they have the opportunity to grow with the business. Um, and then sharing the upside is the last point. So everybody who joins Dr. Dr. gets shares. Not every business does that, but everyone who joins us gets share options. doesn't mm. matter what we are at. Um, and then there's the opportunity to, to have more if you want. Um, because I believe that we're all working towards a really exciting impact and financial outcome as an organization. Mm -hmm. And I want everybody to share in both, you know, to share in the 
the impact we're going to have on the NHS, but also any potential financial upside. No, I think that's incredible. Just hearing you speak over the last few minutes, I can tell kind of the maturity in the business from where mm -hmm. it may have been 10 years ago when you were starting with your, your co-founders off the back of this onion factory. Yeah. Um, but it's been a massive pleasure to kind of meet you, Tom, hear the incredible work you're doing. Um, we love the stuff you're doing. We wish you all the best. Congratulations again on the raise. Uh, Thank you. We want to see you kill it. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next time I have an outpatient appointment, I want to see it's from Dr. Doctor. <laughs> well, that's but, for uh, you. <laughs> but all right. Thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. It's a great podcast. Nice. Thank you so much, buddy. Take awesome. care.